0: Daniel chapter 8 this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you're without a Bible, you'll be fairly lost, for sure lost tonight uh, without a Bible in your hand. And so just flag one of the guys coming up the aisles with uh, Bibles right now. And if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, this evening. When we, uh, as we come here into uh, Daniel chapter uh, 8... I don't know if I said 9, but it is uh, chapter 8. In chapters 7 through 12 uh, of the book of Daniel, it records this uh, long series of visions that the Lord gave to Daniel, uh, uh, speaking to the future of mankind all the way down to uh, the end of human history in terms of in this world, when God will uh, bring the Uh, uh, defiance and the rebellion of man to an end ultimately, and then establish his unending uh, kingdom. And in uh, uh, the vision of of chapter 7 that we saw so long ago, uh, it uh, corresponded to the visions that were given in chapter 2, dealing with these four successive world-ruling empires that would constitute uh, the Uh, human history from the time of Daniel to the end. And we saw there that uh, whether in the great image or in the form of the four beasts, God spoke about uh, prophesying of the Babylonian empire and its end giving way to the Medo-Persian empire, and then the Grecian empire, and then ultimately the Roman empire, and that a final world-ruling empire will uh, come out of the the roots of the Roman Empire uh, headed by the Antichrist at the, the very end of things, and at, which takes us into the Great Tribulation period. The vision here in chapter 8, it focuses on uh, not uh, all four of those kingdoms, but it focuses on the middle two. It focuses on the Medo-Persian Empire, and it focuses on the Grecian Empire specifically. And with a very uh, special focus on a Greek ruler who is uh, identified within the chapter and commonly known in history as uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. And uh, remember, we have the privilege here in the year 2020 uh, of looking back on these prophecies through history and we uh, see them utterly and completely uh, fulfilled. I mean, to uh, to the detail. But for Daniel... And those of his day, all of these visions were a look into a a future that uh, was had not unfolded. The vision in chapter eight was given to Daniel in 551 B.C. to give us a little our bearings a little bit, and uh, and to get our bearings even a little more fully. Uh, The vision was given a full 14 years uh, before Babylon fell. uh, The Babylonian Empire fell to the Medo-Persian. Uh, empire and uh, complete with the conquest of the city of Babylon. And if you had told anyone in the world uh, 14 years before Babylon fell to the Medo-Persian empire that that was going to be a reality in human history, they would have all laughed at you. Uh, Even the night before the city of Babylon fell to the Medo-Persians, it was inconceivable that the city would ever fall as the capital of the Babylonian Empire to the Medes and the Persians. And yet… Uh, all of that happened exactly as uh, God prophesied here uh, that, it, that it would. This prophecy was given to Daniel during uh, the reign of Babylon and, uh, and fully 217 years before uh, the first great battle that would occur between these two empires that are emphasized in the chapter between the Medo-Persian Empire and the Grecian Empire. And so the prophecy speaks of the death of uh, Alexander the Great, and it does so a full uh, 228 years before the uh, event occurred. And so just for a point of comparison the United States has existed as a nation for 243 years. So we're talking about, sometimes it just helps to get these numbers in our head and to realize that, uh, you know, when we look at the prophecies and we say, this prophecy was given 3,000 years before it came out. Oh, wow, okay, 3,000 years. Uh, it was given 714 years before the fulfillment of the end. All right, not as good as 3,000, but still got a lot of wow factor to it. and uh, But Even prophecies that are given 228 years ahead of time, 14 years ahead of time, are are really a a marvel, and we don't want to lose our awe related uh, to all of that. It spoke also of the rise and the fall of Antiochus Epiphanes, a full 378 years before all of that happened. And uh, the prophecies in Daniel are so uh, intricate, they're so interwoven, they're so detailed, and and accurate that uh, Bible critics uh, 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 declare that Daniel could not be the author of the book that's named after him. It must have been written by someone after the events who was writing uh, of it historically and uh, not before them uh, and uh, as a result that rather than Daniel being uh, written in the sixth century BC as it was that somehow it must have been written in the second century uh, after all of these things had come to pass which would have made uh, Daniel not Daniel the prophet but Daniel the historian and that's what they tried to reduce him uh, two, there are many problems with that view, but the glaring problem, of course, uh, is Jesus himself. And quoting Daniel uh, chapter 9 in Matthew chapter 24, he said, therefore, when you see the abomination spoken of by Daniel the historian standing in the holy place, now that's not what he says, by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads and let him understand. And let those who are in Judea fly, uh, flee uh, to the mountains. Now, a, a prophecy and the fulfillment of prophecy is. is uh, always intended, it's intended to accomplish a lot of things in our lives as God's people, but one of the things that it's always intended to do is to reinforce in our lives, uh, the as uh, it's given to us as an evidence of the divine inspiration of the Scriptures. Uh, some of you are too young to remember Gene Dixon and And all of these different people at the end of the year and a new year is coming and they would make all these kind of predictions for the next year. There are vague ones like uh, the sun is going to rise. or we think that there's going to be a great flu that will break out. Or there's going to be uh, this or that. I mean, it just, although it did just played the odds and laid them out. And if someone like a Gene Dixon or some other uh, soothsayer got 80% right, I mean, they were given the mantle of you know, prophet and, and seer uh, of the nation and of the world. And, and yet we come to the Word of God and the marvel of it is it's always 100% accurate. And uh, only God could know history in advance this well, uh, uh, being outside of the time-space continuum as he he is, and and then record it for us with such detail uh, uh, prior to, uh, to it occurring. So there's nothing like it in terms of the Bible, in terms of the prophetic evidence to its divine inspiration, nothing even remotely like it, nothing within a million miles of it. Uh, exists in the world today Uh, and and, uh, we can become so used to it that we can lose our awe over it. And it's to encourage our faith in the fact that not only these things came to pass but that everything that God has prophesied in His Word will come to pass. The rapture will come to pass. The tribulation period will come to pass. The second coming of Christ will come to pass. The kingdom age will come to pass. Uh, Jesus is... Uh, uh, second coming will, uh, the second uh, kingdom age will occur, and then everything will give way to a new heaven and a new earth, exactly as the Bible says. As much as this prophecy that we look at, and we will look at it, uh, that we are going to look at tonight, uh, fulfilled in uh, really jaw-dropping detail uh, so too, every other prophecy is is going to uh, occur, and there is a sense in which every promise in God's word is 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 a, a prophecy of sorts. And in other words, God's word is going to have the final say in terms of human history. But His word will have the final say related to any individual circumstance or situation uh, within our life. It will never ever uh, fail, and so. Uh, all of these uh, future events in human history they'll come to pass as surely as the rise and the fall of the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire and uh, the Grecian Empire. Now, uh, uh, some of you will be be dismayed uh, when I tell you that the United States of America is not mentioned in chapter 8. It it just isn't. And uh, and that everything within chapter 8 it has really uh, no future significance to us uh, at all as Christians, in terms of uh, we're waiting for some aspect of it to be fulfilled. It is completely fulfilled, and uh, so uh, uh, me immediately we, I can begin to lose uh, a portion of of the congregation on things. It, it reminds me. But if you tilt the Bible like this up against the light, you might be able to see something. You know, they're a prophetic. People can get uh, amazing things out of nothing. Uh, on it, if you've ever been to what uh, Disney World or. And I, I know it's there, but I, I'm not certain whether it's at Disneyland and California Adventure or not. But they had that Muppet thing. Uh, laugh out loud, funny, these Muppet uh, deals. But while you're waiting in line, or, or maybe it's during the show, uh, this is why when I go to Disneyland, it's like going the first time. I forget everything. And so, um, <laughs> But they've got this thing where uh, the American Eagle representing the United States, and they're going to put on this show that's going to be a... Uh, you know something that's going to be a, a an honoring of all of the nations of the world, and then he says, "Well, mostly the United States of America." And uh, knowing how uh, we think, the United States is the center of the universe, and uh, even historically, it's. I always get a kick out of how dry that humor is uh, on things, and because we're really not interested in anything that doesn't have anything to do with us. We are Americans. And uh, and not even history, it all began in uh, 1776. So, uh, but but when we, one of the things we want to watch, and especially as we get into uh, some great deal, detail tonight, and, and that causes other people's hearts to sink, uh, but as we get into detail tonight, and, and we see what is prophesied, and then the degree, how it was completely fulfilled, um, it, it to... Uh, and, and not to be bored uh, by that, but to realize that God could have given these, the prophecy that we're about to read in just the broadest general terms, a uh, Gene Dixon kind of, uh, of level. But when you see the detail that he gives here, and, and while it may uh, cause uh, you, you know, us to yawn a little bit on it, uh, then you see how vulnerable God makes himself to The greater the detail, the more likely that some aspect of it 's not going to be fulfilled in in human history, and yet absolutely one hundred percent fulfilled and so Uh, The Bible, and I I never tire uh, just to be marvel at at, uh, the the prophetic element of it and what it's intended to do in terms of our faith and confidence in the Word of God and uh, certainly as the foundation, the more sure word of prophecy, as Peter put it, the foundation for our faith in God and in Christ. And in uh, verse 1, in the third year of the reign of uh, King Belshazzar, uh, a vision appeared to me to me, Daniel, after the the one that appeared to me the first time, and so this uh, vision comes to him now two years after the vision of chapter seven, and uh, daniel 's now had two years to digest that vision concerning the beasts and Uh, and uh, representing Babylon, Medo-Persian Empire, Grecian Empire, Roman Empire, and uh, this vision now uh, also took place 12 years before Uh, the handwriting on the wall at the time of of King Belshazzar and his drunken uh, feast. And so it helps us to understand that when Daniel was called by King Belshazzar on the final night of the uh, Babylonian Empire, when they were conquered that evening by the Medo-Persians, and he offers Daniel up to a third of the kingdom, Daniel says, ah, no thank you. And uh, this tells us that Daniel has known for 12 years that that was going to uh, happen. And he knew it by virtue uh, of this uh, this vision uh, that he received. Uh, Verse 2, see what progress we're making. Uh, I saw in the vision, and so it happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by uh, the river uh, Ulai. And so he sees himself in Shushan, uh, the citadel. He has a vision here unlike uh, what he saw in Daniel in in chapter 7, which was a night vision or a dream. This is a pure vision. Uh, The citadel there in Shushan probably refers to the king's residence there. And uh, most commentators uh, and uh, Bible scholars believe that uh, Daniel was not in Shushan itself, but that he was in Babylon, and he only saw uh, this vision on the banks of this river and in the city uh, by means of, of being kind of transported there by way of, of vision. Babylon did not control uh, the city of Shushan or any of its territories uh, at, at this time, and uh, Shushan was going to one day become uh, the capital of the Persian Empire. Uh, it was, uh, it would, uh, the Persian Empire would not use Babylon as their capital, and the reason Daniel has shown this vision from Shushan is that uh, it, it, that the vision has nothing to do with Babylon. It has everything to do with the Medes, the Persians, and and also uh, with, with the Greeks. And so the second and third world ruling empires. And so Daniel finds himself uh, via this uh, vision in a, a relatively insignificant city at the time, and, uh, and, but it will become the capital of Persia, one of the primary subjects of, of the vision. And uh, it is uh, here in, uh, in Shushan uh, that one day it will become the home of Esther and the city from which uh, Nehemiah would come uh, to Jerusalem. So it, it has quite a biblical uh, history. Then we have uh, the, the dream uh, formally described. In verse three. And then I lifted my eyes and I saw, and there, standing beside the river was a ram. Uh, And the ram has two horns, and the two horns were high. Each of the horns were those are big horns. And but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up. Uh, last, So he describes the ram and the two horns. Uh, the ram is identified later in verse 20 as, the Medo, uh, as Medo-Persia. Uh, the ram was a symbol of Persia and the Persian Empire. And uh, when the Persian king went to battle under the Persian Empire, instead of wearing a crown or a diadem on their head, they always wore a ram's head of gold. It was symbol, symbolic of the, uh, the empire. And uh, as these two horns are there, uh, one of them is a, is a little bit larger than the other, uh, uh, other horn. Uh, because it, was, uh, it, it, it would be a confederation of nations that would make up this empire, uh, the Medes and the Persians. And initially the Medes were kind of the, the, an, the an, uh, initiators of the establishment of the empire and uh, the Persians played kind of second fiddle to them for a while, but then ultimately under King Cyrus uh, the Persian Empire, uh, the Persian section of the confederation uh, comes to the forefront and ultimately becomes known in history as, as the Persian Empire. And so the two uh, peoples that made up uh, the confederation that would overthrow Babylon are represented uh, in, these, uh, in these horns. And so uh, the actions then uh, of this ram i saw the ram verse 4 pushing westward uh, northward and southward so that no animal could stand uh, uh, withstand him that is no nation nor was there any who that could deliver from his hand but he did according to his will and he became Uh, great. And so he pushed westward. The Persian Empire did. If you're familiar with uh, their their history, uh, they pulled westward toward the Mediterranean Sea. They also pushed their empire toward the north and toward the south. At the time of the Persian Empire, by the time it had reached its largest geographical uh, kind of hold in terms of land, it was, uh, it was the single largest empire that had ever up to that point existed in, in human history. One of the fascinating things when we talk about the detail of this particular prophecy uh, is that there's no mention of this uh, ram uh, going to the east. And uh, we know historically that the Medo-Persian Empire never expanded. Uh, significantly, to the east, and so we see this astonishing detail uh, of the prophecy and so none of the countries that it, that it overtook could withstand them. Uh, the, uh, the Persian Empire did precisely what it wanted to, and uh, and became uh, great. It was unstoppable. In, in the fulfillment of this, in expanding to the West, it conquered Israel, and uh, Babylon, Syria, Asia Minor, uh, and uh, the Persian Empire, uh, even made raids into Europe. And uh, certainly, and significantly, as we'll uh, end up in terms of their history, uh, they made significant raids in the Greece, where uh, Alexander the Great is going to rise and make them... Uh, with a a bad taste in his mouth about Persia and uh, and will become a great problem for uh, for the Persian Empire back then. To the north they uh, conquered Armenia, Scythia and the Caspian Sea area. They conquered down the south into Egypt and into Ethiopia, in other words, well into uh, Africa, so quite an empire. And uh, so uh, here it is becoming great. And as Daniel's just watching this vision unfold, he was uh, considering this ram and and uh, its exploits there in his vision. Suddenly, uh, there's this male goat that comes uh, from the west. In his vision, and it comes across the surface of the entire Earth, and it's moving so quickly uh, that it moves without touching the ground. Now that I mean, it's just the the poetic language of this this. Uh, uh, goat moving so quickly, it, it doesn't even look like its feet are touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn uh, between his eyes. And so, this is beautiful graphic language. You can just picture it within your mind. Uh, this uh, speaks of the Grecian Empire, and uh, and it speaks of the fact of how suddenly it came forward in in human history. It came out of the West uh, from uh, Persia and, uh, and it moved with, with great speed. The Greek Empire established under uh, Alexander the Great. And the great, uh, pr- one of the great keys to Alexander the Great's conquest of the world was the speed with which he conquered the world. While the, the Persians, in their uh, matter of warfare, they would, uh, they would amass... Uh, armies of a hundred thousand plus talking just about uh, the the soldiers and not even the support structure and they would just come in and just bludgeon people into uh, submission and here comes alexander the great and he moves with uh, uh, troops numbering as small as 5,000 and and then uh, 10,000 or maybe 25,000 at their max but he hits them, they moved with such speed, moving day and night, that they would catch these armies, and they certainly caught the uh, Persian army repeatedly, uh, uh, preparing for the, the, the Greeks to show up, and they arrived way before anyone anticipated, and uh, utterly defeated in battle uh, after battle. And so he came from the west, he came with that kind of speed, and, uh, and we're told that this uh, that he that then he then he came verse six uh, as he's got this notable horn. The notable horn uh, speaks of Alexander the Great, who was the great king of the, the Grecian Empire, and uh, and then the conflict that's described. And it's certainly worth, you know, picking up an audiobook or something and listening a little bit to uh, the wars. Or are going online. There's a lot of great resources, too, for uh, watching in terms of the collision between the Persian Empire and the, the uh, Grecian Empire for… Uh, the, uh, in uh, In terms of understanding biblical history, and uh, so it was that. Uh, Then uh, he, this great male goat, he came to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. This was the methodology of Alexander the Great. And I saw him, this great goat, confronting the ram, and he was moved with rage against him. Again, Persia had repeatedly tried to conquer uh, the Grecian city-states. Uh, before the, Greci, uh, uh, the uh, Grecian Empire was established. There was a tremendous amount of bitterness on the part uh, of the Greeks toward uh, how they were treated by the Persians. And so here is Alexander the Great and the Greeks themselves having uh, tasted the bitterness of their treatment. And when they got a chance to uh, recompense it, uh, they did. And I saw him confronting the ram And he was moved with rage against him. He attacked the ram, and he broke his two horns. Ever watch those shows on TV? Now you don't have to. Now you can go to YouTube and stream 70,000 of them in a row uh, if you're so inclined. And uh, where these animals come, these great rams that'll come, and they bang heads together... And uh, horns together really and, and the sound that is made just echoes all uh, over the place and uh, I've never seen one yet where uh, one of these rams comes and it hits the other one and breaks both their horns I mean th- think about the, the force of a collision that breaks the two horns uh, off of this great ram and that's, that's how hard Alexander the Great uh, hit the, the, the Persian Empire. And there was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And they showed very little mercy to the Persians at this point, And there was no one uh, that could deliver the ram from his uh, hand. And so this, uh, this tremendous uh, eagerness on the part of Alexander the Great to uh, defeat the Persians described here and all of it uh, is a a part of of, uh, past world uh, history. The result is that the male goat uh, grew very great, that is the Grecian Empire, and when he became strong the large horn was broken. And so uh, Alexander the Great, he he became great, the single great figurehead in the uh, Grecian Empire. And, uh, but then uh, the large horn was broken. He died, uh, famously at about the age of 32. He had conquered uh, all of the known world in that part of the world at that time. He had conquered all the way from uh, g- uh, Greece all the way to India. Uh, and he didn't hold India very well, uh, but but it's a, an incredible amount of land that he had. He had conquered his death. uh, It said that upon uh, this, uh, the extent of the conquest that he had, uh, that he wept over the fact that there was no more uh, lands to uh, to conquer. Uh, there's some speculation about how he died, um, that probably the, mo- the prevailing idea is that uh, uh, he, in, in the city of Babylon, which we, he kind of, interestingly enough, he settled himself down there, uh, not back in Greece. He settled down in Babylon, and in uh, some kind of a drinking party, uh, uh, drank himself drunk, went out into a cold rain, and uh, picked up some pneumonia or something and died uh, soon after. Uh, There's other speculation about how he might have died, but his death was completely unexpected, and there was no provision made for a succession. And, And so, the, the natural um, uh, people that they would look to in order to follow him as the king were his two sons. But both of his sons in the power struggle that ensued because nothing was made clear. Both of them were murdered. And uh, ultimately after a 20 year uh, power struggle for the control of of the empire it was ultimately divided among four uh, greek uh, military uh, leaders and uh, interesting even as it's given to us here four notable horns the grecian empire did not divide up into three sections it did not divide up into five sections it divided up into four sections, exactly as Daniel had prophesied hundreds of years uh, before um, the event. Now, this is of some interest to us because um, there's Abraham Lincoln is, is in this passage in the Hebrew, uh, if, you, if you look very, very closely. No, he's not really. But I got some of you back, didn't I? Huh? I'll resort to everything uh, tonight on this. But what of, I think of at least of some interest to us as Christians is the fact that when Alexander the Great conquered virtually the known world at that time, that everywhere he conquered, he extended the Greek culture and the Greek language into. Uh, the Greek Empire. They would set up city after city after city. They would no sooner would they conquer it militarily than they would set up these cities that were just pure Greek cities in terms of culture and in terms of language. To then. Uh, to then cause these countries to then uh, come to accept the Greek culture and to learn the Greek language. And and they did. And uh, by the time uh, Jesus uh, is born into the world, uh, the entire ancient world was unified by a single language. And that language was the Greek language. And so in the early church, in the book of Acts, when that gospel goes out into all directions as a part of of the Great Commission, they're not having to try and learn the language of this little territory and that little territory and this little territory. All you needed to do was know Greek. And if you knew Greek like any educated person would at that time, including the Apostle Paul, you were able to preach to uh, anyone that was in the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire in In large part it, 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 the Greek language was the formal language of it and and Greek culture was too only it was uh, romanized and uh, but it was essentially uh, the same thing it really a, a marvel of, of of fulfillment here and then Uh, Out of uh, one of these, out of one of these four horns, a little horn is described in verse 9, and uh, this little horn came out of uh, uh, one of the big horns which grew exceedingly great uh, toward the south, toward the east and toward the glorious land, speaking of Israel. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. And he even... Exalted himself as high as the prince uh, of the host and by him Uh, This man, this ruler of this little empire, the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary, God's sanctuary in Jerusalem, was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast uh, truth down to the ground, and he did all of this and prospered. And so, historically, we know uh, that this little horn refers to a man who came into power in uh, that fourth part of the the Greek empire that was centered in Syria, and uh, originally governed by one of Alexander's uh, generals, uh, Seleucus Nicantor. And and as a result of Seleucus Nicantor being the head of that uh, that fourth of of the the, uh, Greek empire, that section of it became known as the Seleucids. And uh, and this particular ruler that is described here, uh, we know as Antiochus Epiphanes. And he came into power about 175 B.C., and he was the eighth king of the Seleucid or the Syrian Empire, and he ruled for 12 years. Uh, and it was, uh, in, uh, he was, in fact, his formal name or official name uh, should have been Antiochus IV, um, but he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, because uh, Epiphanes was kind of a blasphemous title that he took to himself later in his reign, and he took the title of Pheos Antiochus Epiphanes, meaning the illustrious uh, God. <laughs> That's what he thought about himself. Uh, oh, man. Didn't he ever get the flu once in a while and just <laughs> realize how laid low you can be by a bug. (laughs) You're not, uh, none of us are a god. There's nothing like the flu to humble you, is there? I mean, you got all these big muscles and all this, everything, and that that little tiny flu bug nobody can see, and you can't get out of bed for three days. But anyway, uh, I digress. And uh, so, he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. It's a name that he gave to himself. Uh, Others, including the Jews, gave him uh, the name Antiochus uh, Epimanes, which means uh, Antiochus the madman. Let's see how just a slight few letters changed in a word can make a world of difference, can't it? In uh, and, and uh, how uh, people are viewed. Uh, significantly, in verse 9, notice that his uh, focus and his military actions were directed toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, which is the, the land of Israel. And uh, and it's because he had such a focus and such a negative focus upon the land of Israel that he's given such prominence here in in uh, in this particular vision and chapter. What uh, remember now? They're not uh, the Jews will not read this as Americans. They will read it as Jews and they will read this prophecy that is given to them uh, by Daniel long years before Antiochus Epiphanes comes on the scene. And they will read it while Antiochus Epiphanes is on the scene in terms of history, and they will uh, read it hungrily uh, to recognize this is exactly who he is and what he is, and then read, as we'll see in a few minutes here, that he will uh, come to a Uh, a a disastrous, uh, wonderfully disastrous uh, uh, end because of the wicked person uh, that he was. Verse 10 describes his persecution of the Jews, and it talks here about the stars and the sky and the heavens. It signifies the Jewish people. Remember, God spoke to Abraham and said, I'm going to make your descendants as the stars uh, in, in the heaven. And verses 11 and 12 here, He blasphemed God, and he stopped uh, the daily uh, religious animal sacrifices in Jerusalem. He uh, defiled and desecrated the temple. Uh, in verses 11 and 12, uh, when that term prince that's used in verse 11 uh, refers to uh, the Lord. He exalts himself as high as the Lord. In other words, his arrogance is so great that he chooses to take on a very public war uh, with the God of the Bible. that's That's a war you can't win. In verse 12, when uh, Daniel describes all of this as being because of the transgression, it appears to refer to the fact that God allowed this man uh, to uh, do these things in uh, the land of Israel because of the general disobedience of the Jewish people to God and to His commandments, and especially the rulers and especially the uh, Jewish religious leaders. and So he allows this to happen as a chastening in the same way the Babylonian uh, captivity was a chastening for them in order to bring them back to Him wholeheartedly. Uh, The fulfillment of all of this is well known historically. Antiochus was a terrible uh, anti-Semite. And upon taking the throne, one of his immediate goals was to uh, expand his kingdom to include Israel and uh, Jerusalem. And uh, this brought him into conflict with uh, the Ptolemaic uh, dynasty in Egypt. And uh, he tries to conquer Egypt, he conquers uh, Israel uh, as a part of of that conquest, and in conquering Israel uh, while in Jerusalem, he replaced the high priest, the Jewish high priest, with a man of his own choosing to now be uh, the high priest and the religious leader of the Jews, all of it contrary to uh, the Word of God. And uh, he then invaded Egypt in 168 BC and, uh, in, in an attempt to uh, conquer uh, the land of Egypt, something even his father had, had, uh, uh, had never accomplished. And while he goes down into Egypt to conquer Egypt, he, uh, there's a false report makes its way back into Israel that... Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes has died in battle in Egypt, and and so in Israel, of course, there's great joy over that, and they take out Antiochus Epiphanes' appointed high priest, this fraud, and they reinstated the actual uh, high priest. Unfortunately, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes did not die. And when he heard that the Jewish people had done this, uh, on the rumor of, of his, his death, he accused them of rebellion. And he attacked Jerusalem anew. He sacked the city. He uh, 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 slaughtered tens of thousands of people. He slaughtered 40,000 people, uh, uh, Jewish people in Jerusalem alone in three days. I mean, how long has it been? Uh, Was it World War II? Uh, and uh, uh, even then in World War II, well, World War II, there would be, would be that case where you would have, with bombings and these kind of things, uh, the, the, slot, uh, the, the casualties number, numbering 40,000 over a period of three days. These are, these are staggering kind of, of, of numbers. And uh, he took many, many other Jews captive. He stopped, as we're told, the daily uh, sacrifices of the Jews. In verse 12, he cast truth to the ground. In other words, he attempted to destroy the the Jewish Scriptures. And uh, circumcision was forbidden under Antiochus. And all of the Sabbath days and all of the other Jewish feast days Uh, were profaned and uh, made to be uh, something else and the worship of something else. And it was all done in an attempt to completely destroy uh, the uh, Jewish heritage and uh, spiritual heritage of the Jews and their uh, spiritual identity. The crowning act of Antichus Epiphanes' blasphemy occurred when uh, in all of this he placed a statue of uh, Zeus upon the uh, god's altar in Jerusalem, uh, uh, upon the burnt altar in the in, in the, uh, that area uh, temple area of, of Jerusalem, and then he proceeded. Not satisfied with that, he proceeded to then slaughter a pig, uh, and a, uh, you know the the epitome of unclean animal. Uh, and he slaughtered a pig upon it, and then he proceeded to spread the pig broth over the entire temple area, and uh, is said to have entered the holy of holies itself and uh, uh, and uh, defiled it as well, just as the future Antichrist will do and all of this is why the uh, the antichu 's Epiphanes is a type or a picture of the coming of the Antichrist who Jesus said will Uh, do the abomination that causes desolation. Halfway through the seven-year tribulation period, after the temple has been rebuilt by the Jews uh, and the Antichrist has gained control of the world, he has gained the trust of the Jews, uh, one particular morning at that halfway point, three-and-a-half-year mark of the seven-year tribulation, he will march into the holy of holies of the temple. And he will sit down in that place, the place that represents the very presence of God in the world to the Jewish people, and he will declare himself to be God and demand to be worshipped by God. And it will all be like a, a replay of this this terrible history with Antiochus Epiphanes. And so it was, uh, and we all ought to know this, uh, at least this uh, history about it, it was in this context uh, that uh, a uh, Jewish priest by the name of Judas Maccabeus and his followers, uh, after this desecration of the temple, that they rose up in rebellion against Antiochus uh, Epiphanes. And for the historical account of that, you can read, uh, First Maccabees. It's given to you uh, in some detail in, in the book of First Maccabees, and we're told that uh, ultimately they were able to reclaim the temple. They tore down the previous uh, altar that had been put there by Antiochus Epiphanes. They built a new altar. Uh, they rebuilt the, the sanctuary that had been defiled. They uh, and rebuilt the interior of the temple and consecrated the courts and rededicated the temple then in its entirety uh, to, to God. Now, uh, Daniel here, in verse 13, he gets included in a conversation between uh, two holy ones here uh, in, in what's going on. He says, "'And then I heard a holy one uh, speaking.' And another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, so we're talking about a couple of angels here, uh, how long, uh, one of them asked, how long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation? And... Uh, giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. How long is all of this going to uh, take for it to be fulfilled? And uh, the one uh, angel said to Daniel, for 2,300 days then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And so uh, Daniel learns that this desecration, this defilement would continue for 2,300 days, and that's a period of between six and seven years, which is the time that elapsed between uh, the time of Antiochus Epiphanes' initial attack upon the Jews to his death, and uh, with his death, it brought an end to uh, that persecution of of the Jews, Uh, and after which uh, we're told there in verse 14 that the sanctuary would then uh, be cleansed. And again, uh, Judas Maccabeus, known as the Hammer. That's what the that's what name is. That's something. It's, like, it's just like, wouldn't you like to meet a priest that has a nickname, the Hammer? Huh? Say, man, this is the best of both worlds right here. And... Uh, tough guys. And uh, we need tough, tough guys and tough gals today in a completely different way in terms of spiritually for the age that we uh, live in. And so uh, this whole cleansing of the, the, the temple and all that happened it was celebra- uh, is celebrated to this day by the Jews in a feast that is uh, known as the Feast of Lights. Uh, The Feast of Hanukkah, Uh, of course, uh, lands in in the time of of our Christmas, and it celebrates the miraculous provision uh, of oil for eight days to keep the menorah lit uh, uh, when there was really only a single day's supply left. The menorah stayed lit for the eight days, uh, allowing them the time then to to find a fresh supply. And that uh, Feast of Dedication, that that celebration of Hanukkah is mentioned even in the New Testament, Uh, uh, not in any kind of detail, but it's mentioned as something that was uh, celebrated and observed by the Jews in Jesus' day. In John chapter uh, 10, verse 22, we read, and it was at Jerusalem, uh, the feast of dedication or the rededication of light, speaking of Hanukkah, and it was uh, winter. And so this great feast was celebrated uh, in uh, in in that at that time at the time of Christ still remembered by uh, Jews today and uh, associated with this miracle of God related to the temple the feast is not mentioned in the Old Testament because these events occur. Uh, in between the two testaments, the Old Testament and New Testament, as they're recorded in the Scriptures, that 400-year gap that occurs between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So there's uh, no mention of it or any detail of it in, in, uh, in the Old Testament. And then in verse 15, uh, the uh, the, Gabriel interprets the dream now for Daniel. And it happened when I, uh, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And uh, I heard a man's voice between uh, the banks of, uh, of the eulai who uh, called and said to this one man, Gabriel, make this man understand uh, the vision. And so he came near, Gabriel did, to where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my uh, face. And so here is Gabriel mentioned uh, here in, in the Scriptures and the Uh, instructed by someone. The other voice has to be someone who is greater than uh, Gabriel, who is probably the Lord Himself giving him uh, this instruction. Uh, Gabriel will be mentioned once again in chapter 9, as we hope to look at uh, next week, because next week there is nothing happening on Sunday night that is of any interest to us other than uh, the Word of God. But uh, Gabriel also appears in the New Testament in making known to Zechariah, Uh, in the temple uh, of the coming of John the Baptist and also in letting Mary know that she will give birth uh, to To the messiah there 's only three uh, angels that uh, uh, are are mentioned by name like this in the scriptures, uh, and he 's one of them Michael, uh, the Archangel is another uh, Lucifer, uh, the fallen angel is mentioned uh, as well so daniel he, he, uh, uh, Gabriel approaches him and he faints uh, uh, out away and uh, Gabriel is a a gentle giant, and he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time uh, of the end. And so, uh, the vision refers to the time of the end. We can look at that and say, well, I thought it only had to do with the Medo-Persian Empire and the Grecian Empire. What's he talking about? This having a, a, a reference to the end of the age. Here, in its context, this uh, does not refer to the end of the age, and it doesn't refer to Jesus' second coming, uh, as it does so often. Uh, the the uh, the end times or the end of the a uh, the. Uh, the uh, uh, speaking here uh, of the time of the end, so often speaking of Jesus' second coming. And, uh, uh, but here it speaks uh, of the focus of this particular vision in chapter 8, the end of the Medo-Persian and the, the Grecian empires and especially what will be the end of this little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes, related to uh, the extension of the Grecian uh, Empire. And so, uh, here Gabriel speaks so wonderfully uh, to, uh, to Daniel, and now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, and he touched me, and he stood me upright. And he said, look, I am making known to you What shall happen in the latter time of the indignation? For at the appointed time, the end shall be. And the ram, now the interpretation of it, uh, the ram which you saw having the two horns, uh, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. And as for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. Again, spoken hundreds of years before it occurred we look back on it in terms of history. And then he gives this detailed description here of this uh, other man, this Antiochus Epiphanes who will arise out of the, the extension of the, the Greek Empire and in the latter time of their kingdom, uh, the, the Greek Empire of the two. Uh, when, the trans- when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having... Uh, fierce features, who understand sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, uh, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully. He shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit uh, to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart and he shall destroy many in their uh, prosperity. He shall even rise against uh, the prince of princes. He will take on God himself, but he shall be broken without uh, uh, human means. It, It would be interesting to go through verses 23 through 25 and, uh, and, and give the additional detail concerning Antiochus Epiphanes as he's described uh, here, his reign, the parallels that will be there concerning uh, the, the Antichrist during uh, the, the uh, tribulation period. But we've covered adequately enough tonight the monster Uh, that that he he was. You can do that on your own if you'd like to do that. But we're told the end of Antiochus, that he shall be broken without human means. In other words, he would not be defeated in battle, and uh, and he wasn't defeated. He didn't die in battle. He died of some kind of a a, a digestive ailment that involved uh, ulcers and worms, and uh, never a good combination. And uh, so uh, here, Again, all you need is a physical malady, is like the quickest uh, wake-up call for anybody to realize uh, the two great uh, rules of the universe. There is a God, number one, and number two, you're not Him. And uh, and so uh, he, f- he found out uh, the hard way on all of that. And the visions of the evening and the mornings, which... Uh, was told is true, uh, as Daniel is instructed, therefore seal up the uh, vision that had just been given to him, for it refers to many days in the future. And so uh, Gabriel instructs Daniel, take what I've told you, of course it would be put on scrolls, put it in some kind of a dry place, a dry vessel, stored in a dry place, Uh, because it's going to be uh, not so meaningful to you and your generation, Daniel, but it will be very meaningful uh, to uh, a a generation of Jews that are going to follow you that will uh, live uh, through all of this for them to understand what it is that's happening, why it's happening, and what will be uh, the end of it, that God's plan for the Jewish people will prevail uh, against all of it, and uh, and I, Daniel, ha- having had the vision, he fainted and was sick uh, for days it 's uh, interesting he 's had a few of these visions like this, and the physical response to it i don 't know if you 've ever uh, been uh, in the middle of a, uh, a, s- a spiritual situation, whether the dynamic is spiritual warfare or taking a step of faith or or whatever it might be, where the, the, the event is so intense that, I mean, it just leaves you walking like a zombie for a few days afterwards. And he's engaged the spiritual realm in such a powerful way, uh, in this way, and it left him sick uh, for a few days, needing to recover. And then afterwards it says, "'I arose,' and I went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, uh, but no one uh, understood it. In other words, it hadn't come to pass. It was nothing he recognized about human history in in his time. And, uh, and so he, he recovered uh, from the ef- effects of the vision, and then he went on about his business. And, so, and we see very much the same thing that Jesus spoke to us about uh, prophecy concerning the end of the age and uh, the age that we live in as Christians. And uh, we read these things concerning uh, the times of uh, of the end, what it's going to be like geopolitically, socially, morally, spiritually, all of these kind of things. and uh, But we're never ever to Uh, take these things, this revelation that God has given us of the future, uh, even as Daniel models for us here, and then just say, all right, I see how it's all going to end. I'm going to sit the rest of my life out. Uh, No, Jesus gave those parables at the end of his Olivet Discourse about the importance of watching and waiting for his return, but watching and waiting and working so that when Jesus does return at the rapture of the church, he will find us busy about the Lord's business. And so knowing the end of human history, knowing what is going to come to pass, is no excuse for not watching and waiting, saying, oh, he's already said what it's going to be. He'll take care of it. I don't need to do my part in anything. And and abusing prophecy in that way. No, Daniel got up. It impacted him in a mighty way, but then he continued his ministry uh, in, in the age in which God had called him to be that influence in uh, the Babylonian uh, empire. And so uh, mentally, emotionally, the, uh, the effect of it, astonished by the vision, no one understood it. Again, this reminder as we look at this prophecy, and uh, some of you will uh, perhaps leave tonight and uh, you will not have, under- you, you, you not have understood uh, m- much of it. It's a, it's a tremendous history lesson, actually. It's a, it's a shame that uh, world history on this level isn't taught a little bit more than it is, because all of this is, is very significant. So this may be your first exposure to it, and don't be disheartened if you say, I've, I was lost completely this evening. Um, The next time uh, you read or study the book of Daniel chapter 8, or uh, it's being taught in a congregation somewhere, you'll never hear me teach it again, Uh, uh, because we're about 100 years away from coming back uh, to Daniel chapter 8. But little by little, it, it comes into our understanding, and it becomes a part of our relationship with the Lord. But again, as we began, before we leave it, look at the astonishing detail of the prophecy i mean he didn't just tell us a little bit about antiochus Epiphanes, or the medo-persian empire or the grecian empire or how it would end he gets down into incredible specifics i mean he makes himself absolutely vulnerable to to being to say related to god he said this but it never came to pass but every bit of it, in its, in its, it completely in its detail, all of it perfectly fulfilled. And so it'll be concerning uh, every prophecy that is, is given in uh, the book. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. If the worship team will come forward, that'd be great. Hmm. Father, we thank you tonight for uh, the more sure word of prophecy. And how it is that you have chosen to found our faith upon the surest thing in the world and that is your word and then all of the emotional and mental ups and downs uh, and uh, that we experience in life all of the warfare all of the trials and if you had founded our faith on anything other than something that is outside of ourselves something that is founded in you We would be washed to and fro, uh, day in and day out, in terms of our faith. But we thank You for the anchor that You have provided to us in Your Word. And we marvel at the prophecy that we have had the privilege of studying, uh, not as a future event, but as a past event, and then to know, Lord, that so it will be concerning everything that you have promised between now and the establishment of a new heaven and a new earth. We praise you tonight for the privilege of being your children and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen.